Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman, and this afternoon we have with us Jack Russo from uh, the law firm uh, Computer Law Group. Um, nice to have you, Jack. Good. Glad to be here. You bet. Uh, my son is Jack, so great name. Another Jack. Uh, so to kick off the show here uh, and keep with the theme of latte with a lawyer, what's your morning beverage of choice to get started? I usually just have black coffee. I've got this, we've got, I'm married, and my wife and I are both coffee drinkers. We, we have this very expensive barista style machine that makes kind of an excellent um, espresso. So I usually have kind of an espresso shot. I'm not a big um, believer in sugar. I'm not a big believer in uh, adding anything at all to coffee, no milk, no nothing. Um, so it's just a shot of black coffee usually does it. And uh, that's the start of the day. Nice, excellent. What time you get started? Early? Yeah, I'm usually up by about 5.30 a.m. I do about, I mean, I can tell you my re regime, you might get a kick out. Sure. When you get when you get to be in your 60s, you'll understand that. I'm in my 60s, believe it or not. You look great. You look great. Thank we you. haven't met before, so I'm just guessing. <laughs> You're doing probably a similar regime, which is an hour of biking to a yoga studio, an hour of yoga, and then an hour of biking back, and you have to hope that you're not caught in the rain, which I was caught in the rain, which led me to think about when I was growing up, I used to ride a bike from Brooklyn over the Brooklyn Bridge, uptown to up up to East 81st Street in Manhattan. East 81st, and that was yeah. East 81st in Manhattan, which was where I worked as a computer programmer while I was in graduate school at City University in New York. And I went to graduate classes at night in Manhattan, and uh, the bike was a three-speed Raleigh. I mean, it was wasn't That's anything. a long bike ride. That's a long bike a ride. A long bike ride. You got to go over the bridge, which at that time was a little bit raw. It was, you know, New York in the seventies was sort of falling apart. I can tell great stories about that. I won't divert your attention. No, I like to. Hear, that's actually a great story. Yeah. But the thing that occurred is when it started to rain. And it's, it's worth having this memory because I was saying this to my wife today when I got back from the bike ride, I said, you know, it brought me back like 50 years to when I was in New York City working and then sometimes getting caught in the rain, uh, typically coming home, luckily, because you get to the office all wet, it's terrible. Right. And uh, the memory of being wet on a bike was just cast me back by like, five decades and I was thinking to myself wow that's an interesting emotional connection between memory and physical environment and uh, a recollection and how you feel about it it's a very emotional thing and you start to realize that hey that's emotional reaction is what brings you back to the present and uh, I thought to myself it's much more pleasant when the rain is warmer than it was in New York City at the time. And when you have a bike, that's a much better bike because back then the three-speed Raleigh had kind of crappy little brakes that sort of pinched the tires. 
they get wet and you wouldn't be able to stop. And, you know, doing a long bike ride like that, which probably is under 15 miles. I do north of 20 miles each way now. So I do a longer bike ride. But now these disc brakes are so great that even in the rain, you can stop. But I was thinking, wow, in, in five decades, bikes have really improved and the experience has improved. But I was right back there kind of doing the long ride in the rain and thinking to myself, man, what a life. But I was definitely in a much more carefree state at the time. Oh, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. I mean, I had one of those rally bikes and I remember the brakes. I don't have disc brakes yet because I'm too cheap to buy my new bike. But you're right. They're much Worth better. I hate, yeah, I, I hate the existing brakes. They're no good. I'd say get yourself a good bike. And I think there's actually some tax credit that was on the books for getting an electric bike. If you wanted to get that. Nah, I you got to pedal. Nah, you got to pedal. So you do 20 yeah. miles each way. That's each a long way. bike ride. It's like That's a long bike ride. A long bike ride. It burns a lot of calories. I've lost about 50 pounds. I feel good about that. I'd like to lose another 50 and get back to where I was back in the 50 years ago. Yeah, 50 that you know that athletic self is such a great feeling because you you just crave less and eat less and drink less and so many good things happen when you're back to your high school weight or your college weight i guess i was in graduate school so it's a little longer than that yeah that's good that's excellent so so tell me what you're doing these days you're practicing law and if so what what's your law practice so we uh do typically uh IP and business litigation, typically for startup and growth companies that are being challenged by bigger companies. That's the typical yep. scenario. We sometimes represent bigger companies, but to be honest, we more like being with the human capital and the intellectual capital than just with the financial capital. The big companies are really more like financial capital than they are human capital or, or even intellectual capital. They, they may claim otherwise, but yeah, they're like factories. And the ideas are really coming out of individuals and teams that are smaller. I mean, you could see what's happened in the whole AI area where these small teams are generating a lot of wealth very quickly and they get pushed around by bigger companies all the time. And the bigger companies will take advantage of them unless they get someone that can help them. And our firm has done that for more than four decades now. Oh, excellent. And you're, you're in the Bay Area. I can see the Golden Gate Bridge yeah. behind you. But so, um, so we actually have offices. We actually have offices. I mean, I'm licensed to practice in California, New York, Florida. We actually have offices in Florida, offices in Silicon Valley. We have okay. affiliates in New York. We do cases, particularly federal cases, all over the United States. Uh, these days, it's become a more national practice when you're dealing with patents, copyrights, trademarks, mostly even trade secrets now. Yeah. In most federal practice, obviously, is a big dollop of state practice as well. Yeah. So so these are, these are um, mostly... Is it fair to say, like, you know, Silicon Valley tech startups you're working with? Yeah, but there are startups these days in New York and Florida. There's a oh, big sure. startup happening. I mean, Silicon Valley's uh, not really just a geography anymore. It used to be for sure. But now these teams are all over the place and they're often even the management teams 
are all over the place. So it's hard to say that the geography is critical. Now, that said, there's definitely uh, a lot of VCs still in Silicon Valley that like to be within an hour. They like to say, we like to be within an hour flight of our portfolio companies, but more and more we've seen those VCs also say, well, these days, if it's the right company, we'll invest in Austin and a company in Austin, Texas, there's a lot going on there. We'll invest in a company in Tampa, Florida, there's a lot going on there. We'll invest in a company in New York that may not even be in New York City, might be out in Long Island. I mean, could be anywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, where are most of your clients? So are they all over the place too? Yeah, I, I, I think the geography has become different over time. I think they tend to be um, more national these days, but there's certainly more people that know us in Silicon Valley. And if you type in who is Computer Law Group LLP, it'll say, it'll come back and chat GPT and in Google as a Silicon Valley law firm because that's where certainly most of our people are most of our heritage is okay that makes sense what so speaking of you mentioned chat gpt what do you think about that i think it's an amazing experiment that is going to be embraced by many rejected by some and leveraged by people that are much more futuristically oriented and the future is really where the puck is headed. So yeah, you ahead. The future is you got to follow the puck, and yeah. the puck is clearly moving to the other side of the ice, which is AI. We used to think of AI years ago because I've been doing work for AI companies almost from the start. As well, it's really not going to be artificial intelligence. It's going to be augmented intelligence, and by that. It meant the human was still very involved, but the AI was supportive. So back in the day, way back when I was at Davis Stafford, Kelman and Fenwick, now Fenwick and West, we represented the innovators that created the first electronic spreadsheet. We also started Apple computer. We also started electronic arts. We also started Oracle. We did litigation for all those companies hmm. and perhaps they still do. I left decades ago to start my own firm. It's not a computer law group, but if you think about it, um, those companies were very much at the forefront of augmented intelligence. When you could put a number in a spreadsheet and watch the spreadsheet bubble up a total before your very eyes, that was magical. That was instantaneous. Chat GPT has many of the same elements. Type in a sim single query and all of a sudden, it looks like you have an essay back. Right. Indeed, as and I said, what are the pros and cons of using ChatGPT? I said that to ChatGPT, and it came back with a really good essay about there are pros and there are cons. And I think you're going to hear different groups with certain biases uh, go one way or the other. Yeah. Well, it's that's taken hours and... I don't know how long to sort of to, to uh, label all that so you can get that kind of output quickly, right? So it, it, it's well, all it's automatically labeled. I mean, that's the magic of, of machine learning. It's, yeah. all, it's all done by the computer itself. It's not like a lot of people are, are actually looking at any of this. I mean, they, they might look at some aberrational stuff, but they don't look at most of what's done is done by the computer, which can lead to some really right. crazy 
results that they have to screen out, of course. But yeah, the the answer I'm I've I've had experience with with AI and different things, but yeah, the unsupervised uh, approach is just amazing. The computer literally just takes over. Well, um, Microsoft did an experiment a while ago that led to a lot of of bad press, which is they they did something like Chat GPT, but they did it in a different way, and it generated a lot of really negative essays, and they had to take it off as a product or as a potential product, because people were like, wow, if that's what's coming out of the internet, most of it is is nasty. Right. And I don't know how that happened and why they allowed that to happen, but it was bad for them. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see Google's response to it too. I know they're already starting that. I mean, how will they respond to? Well, they just made a $300 million investment in a little tiny group of people that literally are getting a $5 billion unicorn valuation. And so it's a group of people that exited OpenAI. It's in the news. It's easy to find. I won't name the names of the companies, but yep. it's out. And they just basically are trying to make sure that they don't play second fiddle here because it is risky for Google to imagine that something can come on the scene and maybe provide a better, more granular result than putting in a Google search. Right. That's, that's an existential risk for them. Oh yeah, huge. That would change the game completely. Um, although the stock is really rallying, so people are still pretty optimistic about it. Well, the stock has been way down for a yeah. long time, so it's yeah. probably the right time to get in at the bottom if this is really the bottom. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, so this is your firm that you started. Well, it started with uh, myself and a barrister. She's now deceased. Her name is Daryl Nelson. She had tried like 600 cases in England, then came to the United States. I was her mentor at Davis Stafford Kelman and Fenwick. She had way more experience than I had. She had way more experience than probably the entire California bar for that matter. Really? A lot of cases in England because they do like three cases a week or three cases a day. They'll have a misdemeanor case in the morning. They'll have a fraud civil action in the afternoon. They might have some other case that's happening in, in night court. I mean, literally the way barrister work works, you know, years, decades ago, the barristers were not that specialized. That started to change, but she fell in love with the guy, not me, somebody else. <laughs> and um, she joined, we hired her as, as part of our trial team. And we said, we can train you. She found a lot of American approaches crazy. She thought it was way too much paper. She was extremely smart, extremely capable on her feet and uh, had everything going for her, unfortunately. I mean, she was with us for quite a while and unfortunately she um, she died young of cancer. And it's, it's sad, I, I gave the eulogy for her a few years ago and I said, you know, she's such a great person, such a great lawyer, she's gonna be sorely missed and she is. And so we went from uh, what was Nelson and Russo to Russo, it was then Nelson, Russo and Hale, then Russo and Hale, and then uh, became Computer Law Group at the point that, that Hale retired. And I just said, we really are known by our website, which is computerlaw.com. So just be called Computer Law Group. And I don't have such a big ego yeah. that I need my name in it. Although people said, oh, if everyone knows you, why don't you put your name? 
I was like, I think it's a better practice these days to really focus on what it is that you like doing, you prefer to do, you want to do, and that's the better signal. I think the other big firms have kind of collapsed their names, like Fenwick and West is now called Fenwick because it's Fenwick.com. Yep, absolutely. You see, you see other firms that do the same thing. They shorten their names. I think Cooley, Godward, blah, 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 is now just Cooley. I mean, Oric, blah, 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 is now Oric. You're, you're right. I talked to lots of law and I've seen it in, in practice. I mean, literally playing out right in front of me. But I mean, I think you're right about that. I mean, why would you, you know, instead of having a long list of partners as the name of the firm, why not have something that represents what you do? That that seems to be a better strategy. And then it's a real a asset that you have instead of just a person, right? Right. The ego it plays a big role. I mean, I could tell you that from historical viewing of it. I sometimes, uh, sadly, represent ex-partners that are getting taken advantage of by their partnership. I'll do it as a favor for, sure. you know, you've been around for more than four decades. People choose you and then you feel like, hey, if you really need the help, I'll help you. So I've done those cases and you learn all the inner dirt about a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't disclose any of it, but there's a lot of truth that people have big egos and lawyers have even bigger egos. And they want to see their name and they want to see their name even on buildings, which of course, if the name is long, it can't, <laughs> it can't make its way on the building anymore. That's funny. So do you litigate as part of your price? Sounds like you do. You go to court and litigate? Yeah. Yes. And how often? Well, you active? We, we used to be doing a, a case, at least a trial, at least once every quarter, sometimes even more often than that. Okay. The pandemic has changed the both the volume of cases that go to court, the attitude of the judges who are granting summary judgment or dismissal motions and want to clear their backlogs, and the uh, desire of litigants to spend time in court. We haven't quite gotten to what might be called the videotape trial. Mm. They're experimenting with that in Ohio. I don't know what the results are. I, I read some reports about it that suggested it was working, but it doesn't get a lot of play. And certainly probably most lawyers other than those in Ohio don't really even know much about it, but it's supposed to speed up both the time and, and lower the expense. And of course there's a lot of expense to orchestrating a trial. Oh yeah. But certain things are obviously depositions and hearings and things like that you do remotely now. You don't have right. to travel. Right. Right. I mean, in general, I think that's all true and probably going to remain true for a while. I guess we'll see what happens to what might be called the mentorship model because it's 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 having an impact on younger people. And I wouldn't want to be, I'll just be honest, I wouldn't want to be a younger lawyer operating in a pure video mode because I don't think you get as much on-the-job training as you do when you're in an office with people who are meeting in front of a whiteboard or a flip chart or something else to kind of lay out strategy. And there's a lot of value to a young lawyer. I learned a lot. My mentor was Bill Fenwick. I mean, Bill, Bill was one of the founders of what became Fenwick and West. Originally it was David Stafford Kelman and then Fenwick joined last, interestingly. 
but he became kind of the litigation leader and the firm was mainly a litigation firm. Now I think it's really a broad-based business firm that does everything from soup to nuts for, for any business. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm surprised. Forget about not just law, but like a, across the all industries. I mean, kids would rather sit in their apartment and go to an office, which surprises me. I thought yeah, they want to return to the workplace so they could socialize and, and be with other people, but it, it doesn't seem that way. I think that uh, speaking skills, thinking skills, thinking on your feet skills, all those things are taking a back seat to what I'll call the video game era yeah. of the workplace. These are all people that I think the statistic is that most of these lawyers who are graduating and doing well in law school, they've already booked 10,000 hours of video game time in their <laughs> Like they've, they've from age six to maybe age, call it, you know, 20, maybe yep. even longer than that. They're putting in, you know, hundreds of hours per year of video game time. So they're used to this video game phenomenon that we just weren't brought up on. At least no, I wasn't. I was certainly not. I mean, yeah, I see my kids. I mean, yeah, video games from very early on. And it's a it's a statement because that's a very um, introspective kind of thing. There isn't a lot of verbalization. There's a lot right. of hand movement, but there isn't what I would call uh, the emotional intelligence growth, where you can look someone in the eye and and read them, and also allow them to read you, right. and to bond and establish a relationship. So we're we're evolving in a way that's. I mean, I'm I'm a little worried about it to be honest. I mean, I've yeah, no, I, I agree. On the other hand, it's amazing um, how much information those kids can process because it's it's rapid fire input. They process information very quickly, but they react so quickly that they often make mistakes in kind of the the event reaction outcome like the right. event and reaction are almost fused so the outcome can lead to wacky outcomes and you see judicial sanctions issue from really overreactions i mean there's all sorts of stuff that yeah go just didn't play out between colleagues or even between opposing counsel yeah interesting so so give me an example of the, the types of cases that you would go to court on and are these jury trials too yeah, it's, it's jury, judge cases. I mean, ba basically, a, a classic example is a, is, a, is a growth company. It's been financed. It's off to the races. It looks like it's going to establish a foothold in an industry that has incumbents. And one of the incumbents decides to level it or attempt to level it with some type of intellectual property case. It could be a patent case, could be a copyright case, could be even a trademark or even a trade secret case. And they're in trouble and they need a law firm to defend them. And they need a law firm that's gonna defend them in some smart budgeted way that will result in success in the defense. And we do something that's pretty novel, which is we will at times both discount our fees and take some stock or stock options or some other deferred compensation. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little bit like a trifecta, which is you got to win the case. 
the client's got to actually succeed at its next growth level. And then you have to get to a liquidity event. So some of these relationships go on for decades. Oh, sure. And payouts take a long time, but we've taken a long view with a lot of companies like that. And they are very pleased because we're by their side in a typical David versus Goliath kind of situation. Typically it's Goliath trying to crush David, of course. Mm. That's interesting. I ask that question a lot uh, to IP attorneys uh, that I've had on the on the show here, if they took some equity in, in these deals. Almost everybody said no. I think you're the first that said that you participate, which to me seems, that makes sense to me that you may. Well, we do it with non-voting stock. We do it with full disclosures and consents. We do it with an acknowledgement that we understand it's highly speculative and I can't tell you the number that we win the case and the company still fails or oh, we sure. win the, case, the company can't get to a liquidity and they look like they're succeeding, but they can't get to a liquidity event. And that happens a lot. I mean, the numbers are not great as VCs oh, will tell you sure. their number. Or you just need one big winner. You're playing a long game yeah. and the long game in what is really, you almost have to treat it like it's a calling as opposed to just the job or even just the career you have to treat it as look my calling is to help teams grow and take advantage of their human potential beyond where they are today and help them kind of plow ahead when obstacles come in their way and so that's a that's a calling and that's something i've you know, had in my sort of DNA from probably my grandparents who were all business people and entrepreneurs. My dad was an entrepreneur. My mom was an entrepreneur. And I have to say, I think that that just rubs off over time. And then you recognize entrepreneurial talent and you recognize people that are on a mission and they have a vision and they're going to carry it forward and you want to help them. Yeah. Because how great things happen in Silicon Valley. I mean, when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak walked in to David Stafford, Cummins, and Fenwick, they were broke. They had basically an idea and they had a little bit of a prototype and that was about it. They weren't even near getting funded. Of course, like idiots, uh, <laughs> we didn't stop in that company, which would have really set us up all for life. But that was a time when lawyers were not that entrepreneurial and right. there was view there was a conflict of interest so why'd you become a lawyer then if your parents were entrepreneurs why'd you become a lawyer um it's it's a funny story and it would probably take up too much time but the short version is i yeah. had a room in college and graduate school i actually started out thinking i would be a medical doctor you get a lot and, of degrees i saw all these degrees yeah, in there. Yeah, i know so it's, it's like <laughs> I, my parents inspired me to to, to from an educational point of view from a very young age. But um, I didn't really like sort of dissecting frogs and imagining watching people bleed. And at some point I said, oh, you know what? I really like this computer science stuff. And so I transitioned to computer science and eventually got into a graduate program that had a combined degree in computer science and statistics. And I actually thought that's what I was gonna do. Okay. which would have been perfect for the world of data analytics, but yeah. that world yet here. 
So uh, somewhere in this, my roommate said, you know, you're really a smart guy and you know how to use logic and argumentation and you're extroverted. Why don't you move towards law and, you know, IP law? I mean, this computer stuff is starting to happen. And I thought to myself, well, I'll apply to law school and kind of see what happens. I'll take the exam, see what happens. And I wanted to move out of New York. I wanted to get to the West Coast. And in my head was, I want to start a software company on the West Coast, but I want a way to get there that will be in a networked environment where you're not just landing cold. So I'll do maybe one year of law at UCLA where I was accepted. And at the time, UCLA had Mel Nimmer, who was a famous copyright guy. He wrote the treatise on copyright law. Okay. Software, people were starting to discuss software is protected by copyright. It wasn't yet in the Copyright Act explicitly. And I was lucky enough to get him as a first year mentor at UCLA. And he inspired me to stay because at some point I think I confided in him that I'm not really sure law is the right thing. I have these ideas for business. I said, finish the law degree. You can always do the business later. You're in, you're like one of a million people that try to get in here just do it. And so I did, I did well, order the Coit, law review, all that jazz. And um, ultimately was able to come up to Silicon Valley, which was a big positive move because move because it was just happening at that time. Everything was just happening at that time. Mm, fascinating. Wait, so you have, wait, did you get your PhD? It says PhD candidate. I'm looking did you finish yeah, so somewhere in this, I started a PhD, which I'm right at the dissertation stage on. Huh. On what? As part of the goal, eventually, is to do some teaching. Okay. So the PhD is really about the effect of automation on all of the knowledge professions, all of them. So okay. this chat stuff is so timely. Sure. I mean, I've seen this evolving for the last 10 years. So I've seen... The people who are working behind the scenes in this area for a long time and i knew sooner or later something would hit the market that would start opening people's eyes up to this mm. it's happened it literally just just is happening like right now what's the, so, what's driving it what's the what's the objective of all that what, what do you think well, I'll tell you what the three drivers are and then i can tell you what the three outcomes are the three drivers are number one you've got big data that's making its way onto commonly available servers, call mm -hmm. that the public. Yep. And then you've got the fact that the algorithms have been better perfected to do the actual machine learning in a way that creates the um, augmented intelligence or the artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call AI, that allows it to actually give an answer that seems right, it's sometimes totally wrong because the underlying data is wrong because it's not really filtering for just the best experts. You have to imagine that someone's going to do that version of chat GBT, just focus on the best experts. And then the three outcomes are you start to see results that look like knowledge work. It looks like knowledge work. It may actually be real knowledge work. That is, it's beyond the look. It actually is knowledge work. And number three, it's getting done so quickly and efficiently that it can be almost automatically adopted without a human looking at it. But these days, that's where most people are like, 
no, 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 no. Humans got to keep their hands on the steering wheel. We're not going to just let this thing automatically run. Although I'll tell you, some of the websites uh, that paid for content before are starting to say, we're not going to pay for content. We're just going to have it automatically generated. We're going to see some wacky stuff uh, get published as a result of that. Hmm. But you know, most people think there will be some human being in the mix that can actually make sure what's done is is accurate and and publishable. And what do you think? I mean, does it re in the, in the limit? Does it replace the human being, or is it just a tool that accelerates some of that the work underlying work? I think it does both. I mean, I think it's going to replace the research associate. I was a research associate for for Mel Nimmer. He threw the CONTU report. That was the Commission on New Technological Uses. That was the acronym C-O-N-T-U for we're studying where new technology is going and how copyright may be impacted and may need to be amended. The act may need to be amended, which it was. And he threw it at me saying, I'm, I'm too busy dealing with copy machines and libraries. Take this report and read it and tell me what to do on the software side. Do you, You've got a master's degree in computer science. You know something about this area. So it was a perfect opportunity to help him with his input as one of the people on the CONTU committee. And it was like an exposure to this is how the law is actually made at the statutory level. And so that research, arguably, Mel, if you had some version of chat GPT, could theoretically get done. So what might be called a low, low, low research associate work, research assistant work is probably going to go away, but the higher level insight work um, will stay. And there probably will be more specialization among people who do the insight work so that they can add more value over time. I mean, look, we're living in a world where computers were really not even around 50 years ago. Right. I mean, look at the last 50 years has taken us compared to like where society was a hundred years ago. I mean, yes, it's accelerating. Yeah. Much faster right now. Way, way faster, way faster. So Moore's law then has to be uh, updated. Well, Moore's laws <laughs> has sort of been pretty reliable, although they're hitting kind of the, the limits of the laws of physics in terms of just how much doubling can happen, at least on a piece of silicon, although they think maybe silicon gets replaced by some other form of substrate. I mean, we'll see what plays out there. There's a lot of work, obviously, where people believe that the, the, there aren't really limits. But we know, like, for example, human life, as we know it, typically getting to 100 is, is pretty rock solid if you can get there with your health span. But there's basic laws of physics that say, you know, your cellular material is going to fall apart at some level. And at mm. some you're trying to pack too much onto a silicon wafer. It just falls apart from a yeah. law of physics point of view. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So um, what, what would be your advice to somebody uh, that was pursuing law now? We're, You've had a you, obviously you've been in the middle of some ex really exciting stuff. Would you recommend pursuing that type of law, or what would you tell somebody starting? Well, I think, I think I would say three things to a young person, maybe even starting in high school. 
Like I would say in college, why don't you get a job at a law firm during the summer as someone that even just does grunt work yep. to see whether you, and you know, hopefully with the law firm that has a law office that you actually go to, because I don't think you can get the same experience virtually and see if you like the culture. And then, if, you know, in the first year, maybe you try a big law firm, second year, you try a small law firm, third year, maybe you try a public interest law firm because the opportunity cost of going to law school after four years of college is a really large cost these days, particularly if you're going to like a top 10 law, law, law school or even top 20 law school. I mean, you're gonna spend, I mean, I was lucky enough to go at a very low cost. I think I had a scholarship or something else that got me in and I didn't really spend a lot of my resources other than living expenses because you really don't work. Although I did a little bit of consulting yeah. during the years of law school. Just generally speaking, that three years um, is gonna be pretty pricey. And I wouldn't wanna see someone saddled with a lot of debt um, unless they felt like, hey, I'm going to do really well in a top 20 law school and I'm going to get a great job. Maybe I'm going to clerk in the Court of Appeals and then at Supreme Court and all that jazz. And okay, you know, that's like one out of every, what, 10,000 students in America. It's not really most people. So you have to really want to find your calling. So I'd be probing what do you think your calling is, not just your job, not just your career. What really gets your juices going? What do you really enjoy doing? And I want to make sure, because there are a lot of people that are happier teaching elementary school than they are practicing law. And I have a lot of friends that bailed out of the legal profession and went off and did different things, teaching gigs. Um, some of them went into business. Some of them started their own business. One of them became a baker. I mean, there's so many examples. <laughs> burned out lawyers as you probably have detected in yeah. your interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have someone that's not energized by what they're doing, they probably shouldn't be doing it. Right. They really should be thinking about, is there some better form of my human potential that matches up in a way that's gonna make me happy about waking up in the morning? Yeah, I think the problem is it take it, it takes some time to figure that out. You know, you don't figure that out quickly. Well, we should be teaching it in grade school. Yeah. I think you're right. We should actually be allowing people to start to understand what does it mean to have a calling. I mean, look, in grade school, I thought I was going to be a priest. I mean, when the opposite sex started to be interesting in high school, <laughs> that idea. Went up. And so, you know. <laughs> It's, it's one of those things where you really have to imagine that you get a flavor for all the trade-offs that are involved in different professions and different callings, because, you know, being a priest, I think is a real calling. Of course, we've seen a tremendous reduction yeah. in, the, in the nunhood. I mean, it continues to reduce daily. I don't know what the Catholic church or even any of these other churches are going to do about it because it's across the board. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that, that's, AI may play a role there. Chat, chat, <laughs> chat. GBT dot religion may be like the next your virtual uh, priest or rabbi. There you go. Right. That that would be that would be something. Who knows? Anyway, well, okay. well, good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, just sort of final words you want to leave with the audience about your law firm. 
Yeah, I mean, in general, I think most uh, clients that are savvy pick the lawyer first and law firm next, regardless yeah. of whether it's big, medium, or small. Um, if you need a ginormous team of people, you better be ready for a ginormous bill. <laughs> for my money, most teams don't need to be more than three or four people. Um, the more is not necessarily the better. Um, I would think you'd have to be smart if you have a budget of what you select. And in general, I think you want to be wise about whether you want to even get into the war, because sometimes cases are more about making the right resolution plan than they are about winning the war. Like I look at this whole series of stuff that Elon Musk is going through, and I'm not going to criticize any of his lawyers or any of the firms, many firms that he's hired. But some of this just looks like a lot of litigation over over nothing. Now, some of it is 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 obviously messy. And he's announced he wants to have a tiger in the court courtroom and wants to have a tiger team as his law firms and he can afford them, which makes it sound like he's treating litigation as sport. Yeah, but I'll tell you something. Uh, I think Donald Trump did that for a long time successfully, and I don't want to say anything negative about the Donald, but I would say that some of this is coming back to roost on him in his now 70s, going into his 80s, which cannot be a good thing for his health span. I mean, to have as many cases going in the criminal docket, in the civil docket, in the tax docket... I mean, it cannot be a good thing. And I think if his dad were still alive, his dad would be raising his eyebrows saying, how do you possibly get up in the morning? I mean, he cannot be, I mean, you, he can call in Donald, call in if you're wrong, if I'm wrong on this, but he cannot be the happiest camper um, on the planet. And I don't think Elon Musk can be either, even though- no, you could, Yeah, with that much conflict in your life, that's- not a lot of conflict and it's a lot of stress and the reality is you have to pick your shots. And maybe Elon is doing that. Maybe Donald, the Don is doing Don, the Donald is doing that too. But I look in the newspapers and I read a lot of newspapers in the morning, usually before I get started on the biking. And I'll tell you something. Um, I wouldn't want to be those guys. They have great wealth, but I don't see great happiness there. I really don't. So you have to choose your shots and choose your battles and be smart about what the really big picture is. That, that Those are the words I would say to any potential client who, who calls. And I often do say that even within the first often no charge phone call, just talking to them about it. Agree. Okay. So good, good, good parting words. Well, listen, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, really interesting conversation. And again, for everybody, Jack Russo, it's a law firm, Computer Law Group. And this is sponsored by Emotion Track, which is a legal tech platform. And we help litigators prepare for mediation and trials with our insights platform. Yeah, it's great. Sure. I'd, love, I'd love to get a trial version of it to test some of the themes that we're doing in certain cases, because I saw the testimonials and they were pretty, pretty amazing. And then I saw a little sort of synopsis and that look pretty amazing as well. So they're, they're onto something and using your podcast to kind of generate interest because it was kind of a subtle way to say, well, what are these guys actually doing? And is it, is it working? And what are the, what are the analytics from it? So it sounds, right. it's a 
good tool. We'll, 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 we'll continue that conversation, but thank you. You're welcome. Good luck with it.